Good morning, everybody. Welcome back to the Debrief Podcast. I'm Josh Durso, joined by Ted Baker and Jackie Augustine. Today we are celebrating the six-year anniversary of the podcast. Uh, we've got the trio back together. Uh, Jackie Augustine co-created the podcast with me back in 2016, it would be now. Um, and holy crap, a lot of time has passed, hasn't it, Jackie? Yes, that seems like a really long time ago. Doesn't it? It's I'm glad that this has persisted. We have. We have persisted. And obviously, Ted and I have kind of resumed doing the show on a regular basis here over the last year or so. And of course, the pandemic created all kinds of like scheduling issues and stuff like that. But we have persisted, as Jackie said. <laughs> uh, and today, we're finally going to, after I think I've been kind of putting it off for about a month or a month and a half, diving into some of these Geneva issues. Now that we've got Jackie here, we absolutely have to get into them. So that is where we're going to be starting today. Uh, let's start with the appointment that happened for Ward 6 mm -hmm. and also the vacancies that continue to loom. Where is Geneva right now in the process, Jackie? From the, the outsider's perspective, where does it seem like city council is? Obviously, the people who have been following city council coverage on FingerLakes1.com, they know it's happening month to month. But uh, from that outside perspective, it might also be a little bit confusing because it doesn't seem like there's a very clear answer as to when things are going to settle out. Yeah, I mean, I think even for people who are trying to follow it really closely, and I appreciate you know the job that that you're doing in, in getting that information out to people, it's confusing. I mean, I've, I'd like to think that I follow city stuff pretty closely, and I'm having a hard time figuring out what's really going on. Um, the, so they've got at City Hall the, the vacancy in comptroller, planner, economic development, city manager. There's no representative for wards five and six, which is district three at the county supervisors. And they just filled um, the position, like you said, for the sixth ward, which they had known was going to be vacant for almost a year because I, I think John Pruitt had announced and then agreed to stay on. And still, you'd think there'd be no lag time between when he when he leaves and, and when the new person comes in. But even that was slower than expected. And that was August. I want to say that was July, August. So it, was, it seemed like it was a full six months almost. Right. We, you know, that, that time in between. The thing that I've been curious about, and I have some thoughts on this, but I'm curious where, what you think. Um, what is the risk to a city like Geneva, who has, under normal circumstances, operated with a comptroller, with a city manager? Right. Um, <clears throat> People see political vacancies from time to time, city council vacancies, things like that. But what's the risk to a, a, a city operation if you go without a comptroller or a city manager for too long? Well, actually, I, I don't think the risk to city operations is all that great because you do have a lot of really good department heads in place and the city i mean it is a slow moving ship so really it there is a lot of inertia for things to continue as they're going right i think the real risk to the city right now is the panic mode that the city council has communicated to everybody that um they don't believe the city can survive without a city manager immediately which if you were to look in 
the city management realm? Like what do city managers and people in civic government talk about as being kind of the core components and what's really essential to keeping a city in good shape? The city council seems to be going about this completely backward. Instead of building the team, reinforcing the vision, and then looking to solicit a manager who can buy into that and and make it their own, they're essentially saying, hey, someone want to come in and like rebuild this? And that is an incredibly scary proposition for somebody, especially in this market and this political climate. I don't, And I don't mean political as in just, you know, like ideology, but in terms of people evaluating their job choices at the moment. Um, Geneva has not made a compelling argument yet that this is a place you want to come for the salary that they're offering for the term uh, that they're looking at. And I, I think that's, and Ted, weigh in here uh, if you have any thoughts on this, because I think that's where you start to get into this scenario where it doesn't really seem like a a win situation for anybody, because I don't I don't really see how any city manager will be able to step into that void mm-hmm. that now is being created and be successful because city council seems so scattered in how they're approaching things. Um, I, I guess the my curiosity is, Ted, we're two-ish years, right? We're two years into this uh, this particular city council makeup. Is there any hope that we're going to see like a, a come together or, or any kind of uh, continuity in the second half or is this just going to be the the dynamic of this city council and who knows maybe maybe they will literally go two years without a city manager well I think like Jackie said the day to day operation is going to continue on because if you're any kind of a manager you've got people in place and and people who know the day-to-day operations. The bigger issue is just symbolically, and, and the, the big question, why do so many people want out? Is, was it just coincidence? I think most people don't think so. And, and what are we going to do to remedy this so that you can get good people and they're going to feel like they can be effective and want to stay? So, Jackie, weigh in here. Uh, I hear that, and I think the assumption is that there are uh, Gene- the city of Geneva is a strong team as far as the people who are doing the day-to-day work. But how long does that remain the case when right. you have this tumultuous kind of day-to-day, no clear leader operation, anything like that, um, before it starts to erode? Like what's the, yeah. you know, has, city, has Geneva City Council ever seen anything like this where they've been in this, in this scenario? Um, historically, I, I can't remember, at least in the past 20 years, where there's been this much turmoil. Um, but I, I think, and I certainly, I don't want to get any uh, existing employees in, in trouble or uh, create a situation where they feel forced out. Um, but I, I can say that I do think that there is a longing from the remaining staff for city council to actually take governing seriously, to go forward with a retreat, to set particular objectives that they're looking for. I don't have a lot of hope for that at the moment. I've, I will never give up hope. Hope abounds, right? But um, I, I do, I am concerned because at the end of the year, when Councillor Pruitt was leaving and kind of the begin, it was the beginning of the end for a lot of staff people, right? Um, 
he put forward a series of resolutions which tried to professionalize the city council and put in some reminders that like this is your job you ought to set benchmarks you ought to measure them periodically you ought to communicate clearly with staff and give feedback that's meaningful and it was rejected and it was rejected unfortunately by the guys who now are touting how they're leading the city manager search and it's like oh my goodness the fear that that strikes into the hearts of good public servants is is quite is quite large so election time in november obviously there's going to be a couple uh, open seats by vacancy that wind up coming up um and then obviously in the next two years you'll have a, a more full uh running of different seats I'm curious, uh, if Election Day were tomorrow, who would ultimately pay the price for uh, the way things have gone over the last two and a half to three years for city council? Is this going to be something that, you know, the mayor and perhaps a few of uh, city council who've been more outspoken take most of the heat? Or is this something that maybe the, the voting public will largely overlook by the time we get to an election? Well, I don't know, because... Um I do think that the guys, and I, I mean, I hate to pick on the, the men of council, but that's where I see the trouble coming from. Um, I think the guys are trying to create a narrative that this is all the Democrats. And if you look at just the party affiliation of city council, you might think it's being run by Democrats. But if you actually look at the functioning of city council or the malfunctioning of city council, uh, it's not your traditional Democratic wing that's calling the shots. So do I think the the Democrats are ruining ruining everything narrative might win? Maybe because a lot of people in Geneva aren't paying attention to anything other than sound bites. You know, people are upset about what's going on downtown and they don't really know how that came to be, which administration did what. Um, And they look at, well, the mayor's a Democrat, so that must be the problem. But anybody who's actually paying attention would see that... um, there's there's a lot of blame to go around. I feel like everybody could could wind up having to deal with that. I mean, it's, it's interesting because when you have wards in the equation, it's such a different dynamic than just the traditional right-left Democrat versus Republican sort of battle. I mean, these are basically neighborhood races. They're kind of like right. neighborhood races when it really comes down to it. And a part of me just wonders if we don't see a full turnover the next time around. Because it, yeah. it, I, I think that if this persists for another, if this is allowed to persist for another year to two years, there is going to be so much frustration on the other side. I just feel like it, it'll almost be, you talk about a, a no-win situation. I think it'll be unwinnable for anyone who's running as an incumbent. Well, what's what's really unfortunate, I think, is that that kind of rise of the throw the bums out mentality, which you hear over and over, um, is actually really bad policy because, uh, again, anyone who's who's paying attention and following and understanding how city government actually works would want there to be some continuity and some historical memory. I mean, city council is definitely suffering from that right now. You have only the mayor and councilor camera who have served on city council in the past, and it shows in the way the council operates. Um, you've got guys trying to do stuff that council's not empowered to do, complaining about things that that 
uh, council couldn't interfere with. I, well, maybe that's the same criticism. Um, but a real misunderstanding of even what the role of city council is. And that is concerning to me. Granted, you do have some longer standing members of the community who've run businesses, who have been in the mix of city government, so you do have some continuity there. But the idea that everybody who's ever touched city government would be out is scary to me. Yeah, and I think I think back to Election Night Live 2019, me, you, uh, I think Gabe was here, and mm-hmm. a couple other folks, uh, when we did our, our Election Night coverage, that was the big takeaway. When when these seats turned over, that was the big we the the continuity was gone. Right. You had the mayor who had previously served. You had uh, Councilor Camera who had previously served, but you really lost a lot of that historical reference point to be able to point back to five years ago or six years ago or you know God knows even further. And that is, I, I think that that's probably the the biggest um, gap that exists with City Council. And I I just I, as someone who has watched a lot of towns and cities try to go through this. I don't know how, if you're a Republican in the city of Geneva, I don't know how you run the next cycle around and say it's all the Democrats' fault when literally city council as a whole has not accomplished really anything in two plus years. I mean, and and nothing that's been, let me frame that a little bit. Nothing. That's kind of a terrible thing to say. Accomplished nothing. Nothing that's been noteworthy. Nothing that's made headlines. Nothing that's stood out more than all of the issues that have stood out over the last well, two and a half years. And Ted, I'm sorry, I don't mean to jump in. Oh, no. I, well, I, you are far more expert on this than I am. I, I just, we all kind of saw this coming with a brand new council coming in. And Jackie said it very well about institutional memory. You need someone who remembers why this decision was made or why we can't do it this way. And, and like you said, you have a lot of people now who don't have a lot of council experience who don't understand, well, why can't we just do this? Yeah. That's where the veteran mayor or the veteran council can step in and say, well, this is why you can't do this. Yeah. And I think, unfortunately, it's been like... So I, I don't agree that the council's not accomplished anything. I think that actually, um, you know, between police reform and some of the other things that I understand are controversial. But if you look at the approach, um, you know, say what you will about individual people's politics, there's a clear divide on council between a group of people who said, here are my issues. Please show me how to get these things done, how to craft legislation, how to move things forward. And those things have happened. And then a group that says we don't like this or we have other ideas but have put forward nothing actionable. And that is the real tension that I think has been the problem with council. There is a lot of bluster and there is very little movement. And unfortunately... You know, people who like to talk, who are already looking ahead in their political career of where they might want to go next, right, can suck a lot of air out of a room. Mm-hmm. And that is what this council's really fallen victim to. It's it's kind of clashing egos. Mm-hmm. And um, that's unfortunate. 
Yeah. Uh, dynamic in Geneva definitely is going to be a subject of a lot of debate uh, moving forward. Another issue that kind of affects Geneva here and affects almost every other community in the Finger Lakes, redistricting. It happened. It's done. We are now in this weird place where the state map looks very confusing. Um, and uh, the the region between, say, Seneca County and Canandaigua is split into, I think, three three different parcels mm-hmm. at this point, three, di- three different districts. Let's talk a little bit about that. What is the What are some of the biggest outstanding issues? Jackie, we'll start with you. Um, when you look at the way the maps turned out, what do you see as kind of the one or two big issues that need to be reconciled one way or another? Well, I think it would be easy to go quickly to the bad news and the craziness of it so I will leave that for a a second and try to have something positive to say about the map Um, so Ontario County is split into three districts now that seems crazy to me it doesn't seem geographically consistent it doesn't seem economically consistent a whole bunch of reasons why even you know the New York State Economic Development Councils don't seem to track no However, on the plus side, you might say, wow, Ontario County is going to have three federal representatives. Maybe we actually get some bipartisan work on agriculture, on rural initiatives. Maybe this is a new day, right? Oh. There's, there's, my, there's my Pollyanna view of what this map means. Um, but I, I will say what's immediately jumped out at me is that people who are now like jockeying for which district they want to run in and where they're going to live and where they're going to say they live and what they're about. None of it that I've heard has been about actual local issues within the district. I'm hearing a lot about people are going to do away with critical race theory. What? Like, oh, you know, a lot of people who are going to, who are saying stuff about, well, you know, the whole gamut. Is anyone talking about Lake Ontario shoreline management, water stable? I mean, you've got an entire district that spans the shoreline silence from that. So it's just, it's highly politicized. That's the, that's the problem. But, yeah. Go ahead, Ted. I know All you right. have a lot I, of thoughts. I know you want to jump in. I didn't want to take I yeah. will try to be brief. Uh, number one, it is laughable to hear Republicans cry crocodile tears about gerrymandering when they've been doing it in every single state they control for decades and are also working behind the scenes to take control of the vote reporting and counting apparatus in order to make it not matter who wins elections. So ha, ha, ha to your crocodile tears. Number two, I'm not a registered Republican. I'm not a registered Democrat. Why do I get no representation in Congress? Political parties are not a part of our Constitution and should not have any part in this process whatsoever. The drawing of congressional districts is supposed to ensure equal representation by population. That's all. That's completely forgotten, and that goes with what Jackie said about you know the issues all just being pushed aside and getting into all this counting. There's really no reason why we couldn't plug populations into a computer and say each district must have roughly the same population, each district should be as close to being a square as possible, and each district should not split up communities. Counties would be nice, but certainly not communities. I I forgot, what's the small town in Cuga County that's now going to have two congressmen 
Ooh, you know, can't think of it off the top of my head. One for each fifty residents. It, right. It's just it's it's crazy that we've allowed political parties to take over these things that really shouldn't be any of their purview whatsoever. Yeah. I agree with you completely, Ted. I, and the, I mean, you raise a really excellent point, which is that here is an, an area where there actually is an objective solution, right? There could be, um, based on population, contiguous area, and some, some geographic configuration, right? that maybe we take into account, uh, you know, lake shores and, and, you know, natural barriers in some way. That could be solved. That's a problem that could be solved. So both sides are wrong when they say, well, if, if it's got to be done this way, this is the best we can do. I mean, that's an incorrect assumption. It doesn't have to be done this way. It does not have to be a political process in that way infused with con issues of control, uh, minimizing certain groups, maximizing others. So yes, I mean, you've got Alabama now where, you know, uh, to use the terminology, you should have majority minority districts <clears throat> and you can't, I mean, it's completely cracked in order to get a particular outcome. How that's not illegal, I don't understand. So I think seeing it in New York State, hopefully, maybe, will have the benefit of opening the eyes of our traditionally Republican rural constituencies that this is what happens when you say there's nothing wrong with a political process. And I don't, I don't laugh at the crocodile tears because I think, you know, better than bad does not good make. I would rather it not be this way at all, no matter who benefits. Um, but it's just, yeah, I wish people would just be more sensible and objective in evaluating this. These things have consequences. But And here's the other aspect is I, I find it kind of funny. Every time we get to an election, we hear about all these undecided voters but now in this process, no one's undecided. Well, this district's 55% Democrats, so the Democrats will win. We're electing not leaders. I hate that term, elected leaders. We're electing representatives. The people we send to Congress are supposed to do the things we would do if we had time, but they're doing it for us. So if you don't like that your district is 55% Democratic, then either change parties or adopt stances that are more in line with the population of your district. If 80% of the people in Ted's district think there should be free lunch, then I should be in favor of free lunch. I'm supposed to represent my people. Again, it's it, instead of these warring parties, adopt stances that match those of the people in your district, and you will probably be elected. And that matter. Adopt yeah. policies that matter to the people who are, you know, you mentioned critical race theory off the top of this conversation, and that is an issue that affects absolutely no one right. in, in the 24th, present, or past. It's going to be hard to eradicate it because it's going to be hard to find any place where it actually exists. <laughs> yeah, and I think this is my, my, like, one singular note for this whole topic was squares. I am so tired of looking at... a 
maps and seeing these lines all over the place that Things make that look absolutely like winged no dragons. sense. Yeah, <laughs> we need squares. We need to bring squares back to this because here's the issue: you, it's not possible. No one can can tell me whether you're running for for office in one of these new districts or whether you're you're totally bought into this process that got us here. You cannot tell me that in the what will be new 24th or 23rd that, that folks will be well represented from tip to tail uh, in that in those districts. It just won't happen. It's not going to be possible. I mean, you're talking about, you know, a two and a half, three hour drive in, in one case to get from one corner to the other. And then if you just drive 20 minutes another direction, you pass through three districts. Right. It makes right. absolutely no sense. And that's the part where like, Again, if the goal, and it's not, I know I'm not stupid or naive enough to believe this, but if the goal were really to get people engaged, to really get people engaged in politics, local or otherwise, things like this wouldn't happen. But that's not the goal. The goal in this scenario is to essentially uh, create a map that's winnable, more winnable for one party. And both parties are, are guilty of doing it historically. I get that. Um, but it's just, it's a shame to see it happen this way because... It's funny, if you just look at maps from, say, the last 10 years, they looked pretty normal and they looked pretty sensible in the grand scheme of things. Yes, there were probably issues with them, you know, in terms of where people were and things like that. But at the end of the day, you could look at it and you could say, oh, okay, that makes sense. Like, it's it's relatively shaped normally. The it's good news is that we have a role to play here. These candidates are going to start coming around, and so when they start talking about these national poll-tested issues, we as media should say, we don't care about that. None of the voters in this district care about that. Let's talk about the things people care about, and let's see if they have answers. I have a controversial take on that. Um, I think coverage of these new districts is going to circle the drain the rest of the way. And over the next two to four years, we just will see very little of it at all. Because, again, local media is getting smaller and shrinking by the day. And it's going to be even harder for uh, local media to reach from one corner of this new 24th to the other corner or have any idea what the issues are up in the Adirondacks or around Watertown. If you're a, a media organization in central New York or in the Finger Lakes, it's just not possible. And that's... Ooh, the gauntlet's been thrown down. I've got a mixer and a Zoom <laughs> and a kitchen table. <laughs> but that's, you know... Turn me loose. Put to, me in, coach. I'm ready to, to play. To our credit, we, we are better positioned to do it than most other news organizations. But I'm just saying, across the board, if we're talking about the whole state, if we're talking about the institution and how democracy is supported by good journalism... If we keep seeing maps that turn out like this, it's it's just the writing's going to the writing's on the wall. It won't no, last. I understand, but I mean, in just ter- in terms of candidates themselves, and and there was I, I'm not going to name the candidate, but there's one candidate who's expressed an interest, and it was the whole like Jackie said, Democrats are all wrong, Democrats have screwed everything up, nothing about issues. So if that candidate wants to talk to us at FingerLakesOne.com. We should steer the conversation in that direction of what do you think about the issues that actually matter to the people in this district and not let them run on these sort of national poll-tested platforms. I mean, to be fair, we had sheriff's races play out in the last two years and judge races that 
banked on those exact same issues. Right, a lot of them and, do. I mean, and that's it, why it's I say, almost become the default. Of so it's incumbent on us running for office to change that conversation. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in Geneva, you know, I, there was a school board. <clears throat> slogan that was like the law and order candidate like I don't I don't even understand like I'm trying to actually figure out like what that means like what is the policy position that's supported by that like I just I don't understand probably detention reform (laughs) but you know that's the thing how are you how are you supposed to actually engage and make an informed choice if the things you're being that you're talking about are just this fluff that are meant to get you angry about something, but they don't say anything. It's almost, it's almost like the people in charge said, look at these shiny objects while we consolidate power. And if people want to say it's the Democrats doing that and not the Republicans, or if people want to say it's the Republicans doing it and not the Democrats, they're both wrong because everybody's doing it. And people are just falling for it. And I, I feel like I'm on this mission. Like I'll be in the grocery store, I'll overhear somebody say something that's wrong, right? That doesn't track with actual reality of how government works. And I'll try to say something, well, you know, like actually city council isn't allowed to make that kind of decision. And they're like, oh, well, I never knew they should tell us that. Yeah, you're right. They should tell you that. But they won't because half of them didn't spend any time trying to figure it out themselves either because they knew that they could just say a bunch of stuff that didn't have any substance to it. So, I mean, we're, are voters culpable in this? Are we culpable for not being good consumers of news, for not being engaged residents? Yes. But to bail us out a bit, I will say people are busy these decisions are important and you should make a good faith effort to get educated but it is very hard in the cable news media environment that has grown up around here um, to cut through that it's a lot easier to sit yourself in front of the tv and get riled up about something and let somebody else do the thinking for you. Right, right. We can all get our own news now, and that's that's where journalism has this role to play, is that the, 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 the role of journalism, and, and too often the way it's being practiced today, is side A says their piece, side B says their piece, and that's it, and we're done. Instead of the way it used to be, and the way I still think it can be, side A says their piece, side B says their piece, and we step in and evaluate and say, well, a lot of what side A said really isn't true, and what side B said, this part's right, this part isn't right. That's, that's what the role of journalism used to be. That's the, the legacy of declining newsroom sizes is increasingly it's just people say their piece. And it's like Jackie said, they realize they can and they won't be challenged. So. Right. If a school board candidate wants to run on an issue that really has nothing to do with the school board, they can do that, and there's no one to step in and say, why are you saying that stuff? Let's talk about things that matter. Yeah. Uh, Let's talk about one more political issue that has to do with one of the topics we touched on in the beginning of the show, uh, appointments or temporary vacancies, that sort of thing. Uh, Backroom deal. The acting district attorney in Cuyahoga County says local Democrats and Governor Kathy Hochul are effectively colluding to appoint a Democrat to the temporary post she currently holds. Uh, You can check that story out on our website. But the gist of this is that there's an appointment to be filled. 
uh, until the election for DA happens this fall. That's because former district attorney attorney John Butelman uh, became the judge in Cuyahoga County. And the the part that I'm curious about is uh, what are our thoughts on this appointment filling process? Because we see it play out in different ways. Um, but the DA, DAs have a bit of a unique appointment filling process compared to filling vacancies at large. But I'm curious, um, does there need to be a better process for filling vacancies? Because it seems like it can either get stuck in the mud really fast or it can be fast tracked by the by the party that has the most power in the moment, whether that tracks with what the 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 makeup of the county really is in terms of electorate or not. And it's odd because it's one of those things where you would think, Jackie, that there would be a pretty like solid process for, for handling, but there just seems not to be. Yeah. I'm well, I mean that is kind of a big question. I don't follow Cayuga County news as closely, but I, I did read up on, on this story and it seems to me like, you know, the it might be a bit of an overreach for the person who's in the position right now to say that they're being booted out. Because actually, if you're in an acting position, that means the position itself is vacant and subject to being filled. So right. you don't actually have a claim on it. Likewise with the acting city manager, right? Like n- nobody would say, oh, well, we've solved the city manager issue. That's not the point. An acting city manager is a stand-in until the permanent person is appointed. So that on that piece, like I don't, I, I guess I wasn't really sensitive to the idea that that she was being re- removed or something was happening to her because it's the nature of the position that you don't really have it. Um, but on the political end, as in terms of how should any of these vacancies been be filled? Well, I mean, rules are rules, right? And there is a process that vests the appointment power in either a particular individual if it's the governor or in a particular decision-making potty if it's city council for filling these um, county supervisor and ward positions uh, that that become vacant but there's no instruction about how that body goes about the process which again gets back to the idea of if there were scrutiny and attention and accountability then you would hope people would just follow a sensible process where they say well hmm, what are the skills perspectives needs of this particular seat and can we find somebody who fits the bill Um, but then when that happens that is accused of being political as well so I, I don't I don't think there's a easy way to do it I think that's why the um, state constitution requires that these positions only fill until the next regular election can be held, or yeah. which is a special election for that seat, but a regular election for another position. Because I think they understand that the risk is, if it's a purely political appointment, you've got to get it back to the people directly as soon as possible. So Geneva's going to have two of these special elections in the fall, um, for for local seats, and Cayuga County will have theirs as well for the DA. So it's going to remedy itself pretty quickly, one way or another. It, it's interesting because it paints this scenario. It, it 
create it creates politicization in the headlines where it's not really necessary right, right. and that's the frustrating part and i think just in terms of you know is there a quick solution get to an election faster mm-hmm. get to get to the election faster like if the if the post is going to be vacant for an extended period of time hold a special special election if you want to call it that um and have it not be in november uh you right know, government I, I think, spends money on a lot of stupid things i think we could budget for that probably the best way to fill elected positions is with elections however in this particular case <laughs> I mean, the the person who's now acting DA, I'm pretty sure was number two in the department, Correct. had been for a number of years, and by all indications is eminently qualified to hold the position, which makes it appear that the Democratic governor is using her power to make sure a Republican doesn't get a position that she has the power to make sure a Democrat gets. So I, I think this is utterly 100% political, and leads me to my observation that with very few differences, I don't see a lot of difference between Kathy Hochul and Andrew Cuomo. Uh, Cuomo was a little more self-aggrandizing and felt like he was born on earth on a mission from God to save us all. (laughs) Uh, I don't think she's quite that narcissistic, but in actual governance, I don't see a whole lot of difference. And I think the thing, again, if if the appointment tracked with historical outcomes of elections for that office say over the over the previous three four five cycles whatever you wanted to do it would make sense but just looking you know use Cuga County use Ontario Seneca Wayne uh, Yates I can't think off the top of my head of of any Democrats that are district attorneys I'm pretty sure they've they're all Republicans and that is that seems to just be the way it the electoral part of this plays out, but it doesn't, to me, the part that gets frustrating is like, oh, okay, so you're going to appoint a Democrat in theory just so they can lose in November and then be be ushered out the door by the person who was there and would have, in theory, created some continuity between transition period and, um, you know, final, the, the final outcome. The other thing, too, is that, that doesn't get enough attention, I don't think, is like, we see this play out from time to time where Someone will run for district attorney for that second or third term. And the sort of background uh, to that is like there's this assumption that if the judge seat, for example, in terms of a district attorney's uh, race, if the judge seat opens up, they're most certainly going to run for it. And there's a good chance being the, being the, the elected district attorney that you're going to be a front runner in that judge race. Um, there, there should be some kind of like catch so that you can't run for a position if you know full well you're going to run for another position a year and a half into the term. But to go back to what we talked about earlier, why are district attorneys Republicans and Democrats? The job of the district attorney is to prosecute offenders to the fullest extent of the law. And that's it. There's not, it's not a policymaking position. I don't, I mean, I'm not naive. I understand why we have Republicans and Democrats running for those positions, but it just, why is this a political process at all? Yeah, no, I I agree with you. And that's, I mean, that's why it seems like this appointment and the way that you described, you know, this was the second in command, has been doing this, makes sense. That is more akin to um, the acting city manager appointment, right? When you're right. replacing an administrative position, it's not a political thing. You're not looking at that person's party registration. You're just saying, do you know the job? Are you able to carry things forward? Here is what, what we'll do. 
which makes a lot of sense. But again, I think, and I think we're going to see this more and more, this increased politicization of things that should not be, instead of us all kind of taking a collective deep breath and saying, maybe the way we get ourselves out of this really you know, chaotic, tense situation we're in is to back away from insisting on you know, maybe now is the time to have this discussion about whether or not certain positions should be depoliticized. I, but again, this is me being like ridiculously naive that people want a way out of the tension and want the sensible solution. But I think there are a lot of people who just enjoy fighting. And <laughs> just like I think, I mean, look at a city council meeting. You, I'm telling you, if they had to write on paper, this is my idea. If Laura came into a meeting and just handed out a piece of paper with her ideas, well, not she, someone else would hand it out. The group would be like, wow, this is really sensible stuff. But as soon as it comes from her, they oppose it just because it's her. And that goes, I mean, that goes for other people as well. I'm not, I'm not saying she's the only person getting that treatment, but it is most pronounced, I think. So just use, I apologize for using her as an example, but I, I see that very clearly. Well, right. and there have been surveys nationally for years that very often when Democratic ideas are presented in a poll but not identified as Democratic ideas, they're largely accepted. If that same idea is presented and identified as a Democratic idea, it's then roundly rejected. Right. So right. again, it's it's this D and R fight going on rather than who has the best ideas right. and I mean, and how can we come together? Uh, you know, to again to circle back to where we started with the Geneva City Council, there must be something they can all agree on. Yeah, and it used to be. It, it actually, if you go back and look at some of the election platforms, housing quality, rental registry, all of these things were things that the Republicans were all for. But now that they've cast it as a Democratic issue, completely stalled. And I don't understand it because this actually affects people's lives. Like there are people living in substandard housing. There are people buying up properties in Geneva and preventing people from purchasing a home because an investment person has come in. And, and, and it's like the city's too busy talking about something else to actually address issues that are affecting people's day to day. And I don't, it's, I don't want to be a Debbie Downer. I'm sorry. And I will say, as a hope, there's hope. As a, (laughs) as a a mild correction to what I said, yes, uh, most DAs in the region are Republicans in registration. Uh, Some have received cross, uh, cross uh, endorsements between both parties. Um, That, that I think is a separate debate for another time. But, um, it it before people start sliding into my inbox saying no I'm I'm on both sides I yeah you are sure uh, let's talk about something that you did mention though um, housing particular rent prices uh, it turns out the cost to rent a one to three bedroom apartment in upstate New York is getting even more expensive over the last two years there have been a lot of anecdotal evidence uh, most recently we published a story about a woman in Webster who was forced to move out of her apartment after rent jumped from 800 to around $1,200. Um, and we've seen uh, bits and pieces, whether it be because of the pandemic or whether it be just because of housing prices going up. Um, we've seen lots of stories about 
20, 30, 40% jumps just in one single year cycle um, in rent prices. So what's the answer? Uh, Does it come down to controlling rent prices or mandating a certain volume of affordable housing? Is it more focus on getting people into home ownership? Um, Jackie, I'm actually curious what your thoughts are on this because uh, you're, you're much more in tune than I or Ted are uh, with, with these sorts of issues. Um, but I'm, I'm curious because I know there are a couple state proposals to try and rein in rent as an example, but do any of them really go far enough to course correct where it seems we're going? Well, I, I think, you know, in full disclosure, you know, I, I do sit on the, um, that, the housing task force the, from the, the city town COVID-19 task force, the housing subcommittee has continued on because, you know, as, as the eviction moratorium lifts and stuff, that's really where the, the kind of urgent action is. And the Finger Lakes Housing Consortium, which is made up of, you know, service providers across this, this area uh, dealing with housing issues, has been looking at the data. And it's like so refreshing that you're bringing that up because one of the biggest barriers to getting anything, to, before we can even talk about what would be a viable solution, one of the problems is, and, and it's not, I don't mean to pick on Geneva, that's just where I have the direct experience of this happening, but I know it's going on in other communities as well. The response you get, and you know, this happened at a couple city council meetings, is people who are not in tune with the rental market, who just know what they've heard, will say something like, Geneva's overrun with affordable housing. Like, well, there's no problem. We don't have a problem. We've got too much. And it's like, okay, first, let's humble ourselves and and go to the people who work in the space first and ask if that's true. Let's look at the data. Now, our conversation where we do care about the data and we're looking at it, what is the solution? I think the first thing right out of the gate is housing quality because if you, it's one thing if we're talking about a $1,300 apartment that is well-kept, that has amenities, that, you know, there's trash service, internet provided, you know, that you're getting a quality unit in exchange for what you're paying versus people who are charging $1,300 for places that have sewage running down the wall or, you know, have, you also then have to pay all your utilities. And so we need to really talk about the cost of housing relative to the product being provided because I don't begrudge landlords from getting revenue from a quality product. It's like any other business, right? You should, if you're running a restaurant and you're putting out great food, I don't mind charging or paying $19. Well, okay, I don't, I would mind. But if that were, if I were a fine dining connoisseur, I might not object to a $20 plate, right? But if I'm going to, some of the places that I love to frequent and it's more about the ambiance than the culinary experience, right. then I would complain about that price and I would take my business elsewhere. The problem we have is a captive rental market of people who need housing and can't take their business elsewhere because there is nowhere else to go. So the housing quality issue to me has to, and I'm not saying it's either or, these, these should run in tandem, but I feel like housing quality gets lost in the discussion just of cost. 
now on the cost issue. And I'm sorry, you didn't know I was going to come in with a policy paper. <laughs> so, I'll, I'll stop for a minute. Let me just say, let's talk about quality because return on your housing dollar investment should be a really big piece of any discussion about rent control, stabilization, pricing, et cetera. Right. And I guess the thing that the, the part to me where like the quality and I understand if you want to pay a premium dollar amount for a premium product, have at it. Right. Fine. Do that. Um, but I guess the thing that that concerns me with the trend we're seeing now, whether it's rent prices or whether it's actual housing cost, is that people are getting priced right out of mm-hmm. the the market and with rental properties that was that was the fallback if you couldn't own a home you rented in theory or on paper although i think that trend is a little ambiguous and probably not as accurate today um but what happens when you can't afford rent either i think there's this like sure you know the the if you have something that's worth 1300 1500 2000 dollars whatever the number is that seems crazy to one person if it's worth that then fine but i think there's also this overall stock problem mm-hmm. where if you know the low end of the market is now all of a sudden 12 or 1300 dollars as opposed to 600 dollars and wages didn't effectively double you're you, I mean, there's a clear, like, it's math. It's a math equation. Like, that clearly doesn't work. I don't know if this is happening here in the Finger Lakes, but before this issue even came up on our agenda, uh, within the last couple of weeks, and I apologize, I can't remember the source, but I, I read a national article on the issue, and it said that increasingly rental units are being bought up by financial institutions, yep. hedge funds, and yep. the like, who come in, paint the walls, and raise the rent 30%. I mean, we've had, you've had here, and I've had on the radio, the folks from the Landlords Association who talk about, you know, the small investor who owns a duplex or a couple and lives a few miles away and, and presumably cares about the experience their renter has. When that ownership gets completely disconnected and it's nothing more than an asset on a spreadsheet, they're going to get whatever dollar they can. They're going to raise the rent just as high as they possibly can. And it's like Jackie said, it, it, what do you, where are you going to go? It's not like, well, my rent just went up to 1200 Oh, look, here's a place for $700. Where? And right. that, I think, is what local government can actually get in and do something about. And, I mean, this is so... Uh, you know, the head of the Landlords Association and I re- wrote a, a guest appearance about about ERAP. We've talked about this issue because obviously the landlord voice, the local landlord voice, has a role in this discussion. I frankly am not interested in the investment landlord voice because they are they have their interests. It's a pro forma. We know we don't really need, you know, that's rep- well represented at the table. So um, I think the I- the idea is that Many municipalities are doing this local point of contact legislation, which was actually drafted, put before Geneva City Council, and not voted on. Mostly because I think some people hadn't read it, didn't understand it, thought it was imposing on people's property rights. It got into this whole, again, kind of national conversation about control or something, and didn't, and it totally disconnected from the actual issue at hand. But if 
local municipalities actually got into the business of paying attention to their housing market and putting in reasonable restrictions on not just quality but quantity of units that can be owned, graduated um, fees and registration. Uh, a lot of the the investment people who come in and buy these don't pay their taxes on time. Cheaper for them to invest that money and then pay late because the penalty isn't high enough. Why can't we? It's legally allowed to have a graduated penalty based on an ownership structure. I mean, these are things we can research. These are things we actually can look at the law and figure out how to make existing rules and and guidelines work for the renters. The landlords do a great job of figuring out how the laws can work for them. Municipalities need to step in and say, actually, the people who live, work, vote, you know, impact our communities are by and large, if you look at a place in Geneva where investment uh, purchasing has gone through the roof, so many LLCs that aren't based in Geneva are owning a ton of rental property in Geneva. Does city council work for them? Or does city council work for the people in Geneva who have to live in those units? So again, local municipalities, if we take Ted's idea of representative government, which, uh, you know, Ted, I love it, grounded in the you know founding documents of our country you know novel idea that you know that we need to get back to if we actually look to elected officials to care about representing the interests of the people that they represent these housing issues should be the number one topic in state local congressional races never or rarely makes it onto the onto the discussion. And when a developer comes in and says, I'm going to build high-end townhomes that rent for 2000 a month and I want a tax break, you say, okay, Here great. You go. Sure, here's your tax How break. Much? But you've got to build <laughs> this many units that rent for $800. Now, of course, the problem with that, and we've had this discussion before, is if I put that restriction on here, they just go to another community that doesn't have right. that restriction. Right. Yeah. I, I think the big thing that when I look at different um, different counties and even a couple of cities. I think Auburn has tried to take a little closer look at this. I think mm -hmm. Geneva has at least flirted with the idea before um, of having basically a, a database where you you really have an understanding of what um, the the stock is in mm -hmm. any given place. And I think that that number should be top of mind for uh, any elected official who's, whether they're voting on a pilot for a developer or whether they're just... Uh, looking at the the long the long view of their community, because I I feel like the the trajectory we're on right now price doesn't get reined in until there's like this exodus in the community where people are just moving out in flocks because there's nothing for them to rent and they can't buy a house because like in Yates County that's my favorite example during the pandemic from 2020 to 2021 the average or the median sale price of a home went up $100,000. Yeah. And, and as a homeowner just... in that county, I'm damn pleased about that. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that goes back to the point where, like, on the individual, it's fine. But when you're talking about, you know, what's the rental stock in the village of Rushville, I, I'm, I'm going to assume that probably village officials don't know the answer to that question. Uh, they probably don't know what median rent is. And I would say that's probably the case in most towns, uh, even cities, because it isn't something that's, 
Right. Uh, there isn't a system to really manage it that mm-hmm. well. Um, and I, I don't know who manages it, but I think uh, in terms of getting the numbers to balance better so that median doesn't become something that's completely unattainable. And I'm guessing that if, if anyone does know those figures, it's the property owners. Right. They probably have the resources. I'll bet that there's a database that people can access and on that end of the equation have better information than the people on the renting end. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. All right. We did it, guys. We got through it. All right. Uh, Six Jackie, years. Jackie, thanks for being here. Um, we'll do it again sooner than one year from now. Yeah. Oh, hopefully. Thank, I appreciate the opportunity. I love it. I love to talk about this stuff. <laughs> and uh, Ted, you've been interviewing, I think, like a half dozen people a day. Uh, what are a couple uh, well, of the interesting like it, ones coming One of up? the things, there are a couple of different tracks. We're setting up some, some regulars uh, following meetings. Uh, Geneva Town Supervisor Mark Venuti Join me this morning. I still have to edit that and put it up, but we'll have him the day after the Geneva Town Board meeting. We have Aileen McNabb-Coleman from the Q County Legislature joins us the day after their monthly meeting. Uh, Chuck Mason, of course, Auburn City Clerk, is on every week after the City Council meeting. So we're lining up a lot of those kind of newsmaker uh, regulars. Another issue we're working on right now, we've got one side of the uh, discussion, and I'd like to get the other, is farm labor and the 60-hour versus 40-hour Uh, overtime threshold. We have someone from the farm owning side, and they, of course, have fought against it. Uh, I'm going to try to line up somebody from the farm labor side who is presumably for it and and, and try to do that. Maybe not, you know, I'm not a big fan of head-to-head arguments, but I like to get both sides of an issue, so we're going to be doing a lot of those things in the days to come. All right. Check it all out on FingerLakes1.com. That's all the time we have for today. Uh, Be sure to check out past episodes of The Debrief on Spotify, YouTube, and Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening, guys. We'll see you back here next week. 